When I was in university, I uh, had a good friend from Uganda. His name was Ed. <laughs> Actually, that's not true at all. I mean, it was true that he was a good friend and he was from Uganda, but his name wasn't Ed. Uh, his name in Ugandan was Chuanakatsubaka. <laughs> and uh, nobody called him Chuanakatsubaka. Not even his Ugandan friends would call him Chuanakatsubaka. Uh, Ed said his name was too long. So they were the, actually the ones who started calling him Ed. I once, <laughs> I once asked him, I said, what does Chuanakatsubaka mean anyway? And he said, I am the youngest of 17 children in my family. He said, the second youngest is eight years older than me. Chuanakatsubaka means big surprise. <laughs> I said, I, I bet you were. Uh, but Ed told me of a time when he was in South Africa traveling, eating at a restaurant in no man's land between white and black territory. And the restaurant was filled with some blacks and mostly whites. He said there were whites all around him. He said he was terrified the whole time he was there. Because he said in South Africa, in those days, if a black man and a white man get into a fight, the black man is guilty and goes to jail for the rest of his life. He said he was so afraid that when he was done his meal, he sat at his plate fidgeting with the empty chicken, the chicken bones that sat on his plate and he was picking his teeth and so on, just kind of trying to mind his own business. And suddenly someone tapped him on the shoulder and he looked over his shoulder and there was a white guy staring right into his face. And he said, hey, buddy, the white guy said, do you know what dogs eat? And then he turned around and faced his table and everyone burst out laughing. And Ed said he kind of shrugged it off and paid his bill and left. So three weeks later, he was walking down this street in Uganda and all of a sudden it hit him like a bolt of lightning. Hey, he said, that was an insult. <laughs> He said he was glad that he, it took him so long to figure it out. I don't know what it's like to live in a world of that kind of hate. I've never experienced that kind. I know there's hate all around us, but never in a world of that kind of hate. And just a few hours ago, in South Africa, the human community buried a man who was in part responsible for moving that country and his world a little bit closer towards love and a little bit further from hate. We buried Nelson Mandela, Madiba, South Africa's greatest father and South Africa's greatest son. A man who will be remembered by history not only for standing up against the hatred in the, built into the system of apartheid in South Africa, but a man who will be remembered for doing it the way he did it. Not perfectly, but in the way of Jesus. In the way of love. Through truth and reconciliation and forgiveness. I think Nelson Mandela will be remembered as a man who inched the world a little bit closer to the way that God always wanted it to be. That's exactly what Jesus has been talking about in this entire passage of scripture that we've been studying for the last six weeks. 
He's been talking about what it looks like to live rightly in relationship with God and to live rightly in relationship to yourself and to live rightly in relationship with other people and to live rightly in relationship to the world in such a way that you, you connect your life to the deepest, most abundant, most joy-filled, most healthy, hopeful, connected life a person could possibly imagine. Life the way it was always meant to be. And it's not a life, Jesus has said over and over again, that comes through religious observance, but through transformation of character. It's not a life that comes through external conformity to a religious standard, but an internal condition of the heart. It is not a life that comes through religious rule keeping. It is a life that comes by having your heart filled with a love for God and a love for people and being motivated and inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit living inside of you to be a different kind of person, a person of love who seeks reconciliation in the midst of conflict, who respects, respects people instead of objectifying them, who fights to stay in your marriage rather than fighting to get out of it, who's, who changes lives by speaking the truth in love and who repays hurt and injury with generosity, who foregoes its rights to respond generously to someone who does not have the right to treat you the way you're being treated. And then Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, gives his final example of this life of righteousness, of living rightly. He says in 543, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, once again, Jesus is quoting from Old Testament Jewish law from the book of Leviticus, but he's actually, he's butchering the quote. He's just killing it. In Leviticus 19.18, this is what it says. But do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. We've talked about both those things, revenge and grudge bearing. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. It's the name of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's nothing in the text, actually, about what Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's no hatred language in there. But Jesus isn't just quoting the text. He's quoting how this text was popularly understood. Clearly, Jesus expected people to not be surprised when he said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He said, you've heard it said. This is a common saying. This is the sentiment of how we live, that you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See, what had happened was Jewish scholars had gotten a hold of this Leviticus passage, love your neighbor as yourself. And in grabbing the passage and trying to turn it into a religious law that could be obeyed, they started to debate about who it is that qualified as a neighbor. I mean, clearly the text doesn't mean love everybody because then it would have said love everybody. Neighbor refers to a subset of humanity, people who are deserving of my love. And the question is, who fits within the circle of that subset of humanity? Is my literal physical neighbor? Is it the person who lives in my neighborhood? Is it the person who lives in my village? Is it people that I'm connected to? Is it my friends and family? You know, who is, and so the rabbis would debate who it is that is a neighbor and therefore qualifies to be loved. And while the debate kind of raged on, they all sort of agreed that a neighbor was somebody who was close. Somebody who was of your kind. Someone who is from your tribe, 
who was one of your people, someone who was like you and someone who liked you. In many ways, the text was interpreted a lot closer to, uh, you've heard it said, love your friends as you love yourself. That was the circle. And quite frankly, the rabbis were all agreed that anybody who fell outside of that circle of someone who is connected to you and like you and someone who likes you and so on, anyone outside that circle, you could be completely indifferent to. In fact, the further you got outside that circle, the more you could feel the luxury to hate. And in fact, you don't get too far outside of that circle when all of a sudden, as one of God's people, you're talking about People who are not God's people, which makes them not just your enemy, but God's enemy, and therefore the law obligates you to hate them. You've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemy. Maybe we haven't heard it said quite that way, but every bit as much as they did, that's exactly how we're inclined to live. Everybody in all three of the rooms in which we're gathered this morning, every single person in every one of our rooms has at least somebody who would categorize or qualify as an enemy. I mean, maybe we wouldn't call it that per se, but every one of us has someone who is unlike us in ways that matter to us, in ways that bother us. Every one of us have people who are a part of our tribe and people who are definitively not a part of our tribe and we're actually quite happy that they're not a part of our tribe. Every one of us has people in our worlds who have for one reason or another set themselves against us, who are opposed to us who stand for something that we stand against or who are working for something that we're working against, people who believe something that we disbelieve or people who want something that we definitively don't want and we end up at loggerheads, we end up butting heads and being in opposition to each other as enemies. We have enemies. We have enemies on a, on a grand scale, on the scale of tribes. You know, if you're politically inclined, the conservatives hate the liberals and the liberals hate the NDP. The NDP hate the conservatives and they all hate the bloc. They're just not a part of our tribe and they're trying to undermine what it is that we're trying to do. In the working world, union hates management and management hates unions. In the Western world, we're being increasingly taught to hate Muslims, and Muslims are being increasingly convinced to hate us. Citizens hate immigrants, and immigrants hate citizens, and conservative Christians hate gays, and gays hate conservative Christians, and Francos hate Anglos, and they both hate aboriginals. It even happens within the church world that if you go to the wrong church or the wrong size church or the wrong kind of church or a church that believes the wrong kinds of thing, you're just not one of us. And quite frankly, I've got no use for you. We all have people that we would consider enemies, never mind at the personal level. That boss or employee who makes your work life a living hell. That ex who's bound and determined to make you 
pay, that person who victimized you and stole your innocence, the person who's trying to manipulate you and just won't listen, the person who's trying to control you or the person who's hurting you and just doesn't care, the person who's your rival, your competitor for the only thing that you really want in life, the person who rubs you the wrong way, the person who for whatever reason can't stand the sight of you. We all have people who are enemies. People who get the blood boiling. People who throw your emotions off when they walk in the room. People that you would cross the street just to avoid. Or depending on what kind of person you are, cross the street directly to confront or to slap in the face. We all have enemies. I saw somebody from our community post on Facebook this week. I wish it was legal to shoot just one person in your lifetime. And I admit that I sympathize. Because every one of us has that one person. And we hate them. I mean, we don't say that we hate them. Okay, some people say that they hate them. But most of us wouldn't say that we hate them. I mean, we're not like scheming against them. We're not plotting. We're not, you know, trying to injure them. We're not trying to make them suffer or make them pay. Okay, some of us are, but, but most of us aren't. And so we think, well, I don't, I don't hate them. I'm not trying to hurt them. But you hate them in here. You hate when something good happens to them. In fact, you, you feel this sense of smug satisfaction whenever you perceive them to be getting exactly what you think they deserve. You hate them. You hate them through your jealousy. It's a way of trying to pull somebody down in your emotions, saying, you don't deserve that, I do. We hate them in the way we avoid them. We hate them in the way that we mutter under our breath about them. We hate them in the way we slander them. We hate them in the way that we roll our eyes at them, have no use for them, our skin crawls when they want. We hate them. We just as soon never, ever have to see them again. You've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. And it's exactly how most of us choose to live. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The word that Jesus chooses for love is an interesting word in the Greek language. It's not the word love in Greek that means to be romantically, you know, passionately involved with, though I've heard that story too of enemies who end up falling in love. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about a vague sort of fondness or devotion like you would feel towards your country. I love Canada. He's not talking about the sort of affectionate togetherness that you feel towards family and friends. The word he chooses for love is stronger than that. It means to be inclined to work towards somebody else's good no matter what the personal cost to you. 
It is to so warmly and sincerely and genuinely hope for somebody else to experience what would be best for them that you're willing to pay anything, do anything, and give up anything to make sure that it happens. One commentator said that love is the choice to be with someone, to be warm and attentive in relationship with them, which I understand may not always be appropriate or safe when it comes to enemies, but to choose to be with them warmly and attentively in order to be for them, to be at work on their behalf, in order to guide them towards the life God always wanted to them, to become what God created them to be and to experience what God always wanted them to experience, the life God always wanted for them, a life filled with blessing and abundance and peace. Jesus says, when it comes to those who are opposed to you, when it comes to those that you find yourself living in opposition to, when it comes to those who are somehow set against you as enemies, don't choose hate. Choose to be with them warmly and attentively to work for them on their behalf to guide them towards the rich, abundant, deep, joy-filled, healthy, connected life that God always wanted for them. Love them. What does that mean? In, like, in real terms, Luke tells us, Luke chapter 6, He quotes Jesus as saying, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. You know that person who's doing bad to you? You know that person who's filling your life with bad and terrible things? Make it your life mission to fill their life with good and beautiful things. Bless those who curse you. You know that person who's cursing you, who speaks terribly about you everywhere they go, who wishes nothing but the worst for you and for your life? Wish nothing but the best for them and for their life. In fact, talk highly of them. Honor them wherever you go. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know that person who's hurting you? Get on your knees in the presence of God and tearfully beg God to heal the hurts of the person who's hurting you. And lend to them, he says, without expecting anything back. Get up off your knees, step out into the world and generously give them whatever they need to become the people God has created them to be and experience the life that God has created them to experience. Give generously to the one who's already taken so much from you. Because you will never be more like your father in heaven than in the moment that you do. In verse 45, Jesus says, For your Father in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says, because this is how God loves. God doesn't discriminate between people who love him and people who hate him when he doles out things like sunshine and rain, which in an ancient 
poverty-stricken agrarian culture where everybody lived off the land, both rain and sun, were nothing but incredible blessings because that's how the food grew and that's how you fed your family. Jesus says God pours himself out abundantly, flagrantly, generously, and indiscriminately on people without ever first asking the question about whether they are for him or against him. God loves people who spit in his face. He gives them great jobs and nice homes and beautiful families and solid marriages and respectable kids. He gives them health and he gives them wealth and he gives them success at work and recognition and he fills them with beauty and creativity and gives them opportunities to make a positive difference in the world. And he does it because he loves them. He doesn't stop to first ask the question of whether they love him back. He just, he just flagrantly, indiscriminately throws his blessings out there. And it's not how we would do it. See, God's a God of grace and we prefer karma. God is a God of love and we prefer justice. We want to see good people get good things and bad people, as we determine it, get bad things. And Jesus says, but God just isn't that kind of God. He's a God of grace and not karma. Bible says God is love, that it's in the core essence of his being to love, that God doesn't even know how to hate. The Bible says in the Psalms, it says that Yahweh, that's God's name, Yahweh is good to all his creation. He is compassionate over all that he has made. God loves everything in the created world and he loves it all exactly the same and he dumps himself out in blessing on everyone and everything. In fact, one of the primary criticisms of the Christian God is that he seems far too comfortable allowing good people to experience bad things because we live in a broken world and he seems all too comfortable letting bad people experience good things and God says it's only because the only way I know how to treat someone is with generous, self-giving love. That's the only way I know how to love. And Jesus says, when you learn to love the bad people in your world with exactly that kind of indiscriminate, generous love, he says, you will never ever in your life be more like God than you are in that moment. Because everything else, Jesus says, is just beneath God. In verse 46, it says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? The tax collectors were the most hated population in all the first century Israel. They were the ancient version of the mafia, paying good money out of their own pocket to purchase the right to extort their fellow citizens of their hard-earned money through corruption, greed, and violence to funnel that money to the enemy, which was the Roman Empire, stealing from your friends to pay the enemy. And everyone hated them for it. Jesus, not Jesus, Jesus loved them. He's not hating on them for using them as an example. He's just kind of tapping into people's perceptions of them. But Jesus says, listen, if you only love people who love you back, what makes you different than a common street thug? Even drug dealers know how to take care of their families. Even drug dealers know how to provide for their friends and they do it better than you do. They know how to love like that. If that's all you do, you're nothing special. 
You don't need God at work in your life to love people who love you. That's what human beings do. He says in verse 47, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? In the ancient world, a greeting was more than just, you know, salutations. Hey, how you doing? Please don't answer that question. I'm not interested. It was a genuine prayer, a genuine wish for the other person's well-being. In English, the word hello, I'm led to understand, is a contracted form of health to you. And the word goodbye is a contracted form of God be with you. Originally, our greetings were prayers. And that's exactly the way the Jewish greetings went. They greeted each other with the word shalom. Which simply meant, may God fill your life with good and beautiful things. May your life be filled with peace and abundance and prosperity and health and the love of family and friends and rest and joy and beauty and hope. And, and their greetings would go on and on. Shalom to you and shalom to your wife and shalom to your parents and shalom to your kids. And, and on and on just praying blessing into each other's lives. Jesus says, if all you want is to bless those who bless you, if, if the only people you hope experience good things are the people who hope you experience good things, how are you different than anybody else? He says, even the pagans do that. The pagan is just an ancient uh, Jewish word that means unbeliever. People who aren't, in any way connected in relationship to the God of the Bible, even they do that. Everybody does that. That's love, to love those who love you, but it's not the uber-righteous love of a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, motivated and enabled heart that's filled with a love for God and a love for people that extends even to your enemies. That's not the super-righteousness that Jesus is inviting us into. It's just what humans do. St. Augustine said centuries ago, to love those who love you is human. To hate those who love you is demonic. To love those who hate you is divine. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says, you learn to love this way, with the kind of heart that can extend itself in love, even to those who give you nothing but hate in return. You will be exactly like your heavenly Father. You'll be perfect. It doesn't mean sinless. God's expectation is not that we would be perfect, sinless, that we would never make a mistake as though God, you know, is sitting up there shaking his head and clucking his tongue and rolling his eyes at what screw-ups we are because we messed it up a million times again this week. God's not looking for perfection. What the word perfect means is you'll be complete. You'll be whole. You will have become what you were supposed to be. Willie Mays was the perfect baseball player. Yo-Yo Ma was a perfect cellist, not because they never made mistakes, but because they were the prototype. They were the ideal in living form of what a baseball player and a cellist are supposed to be. Jesus says, you get this right. 
in the core of your being by the power of the Holy Spirit, you discover with my help the ability to pour yourself out warmly and attentively, generously and flagrantly in love on behalf of those who hate you in order to help them experience the very best of what I have for them in life. At that moment, he says, you will have become exactly what you were created to be, perfect in love, in the kind of love that destroys conflict and undermines lust and saves marriages and changes lives with the truth and responds to injustice with generosity, not just for our friends but for our enemies. You will have become perfect in love. The kind of heart filled with the Spirit, filled with love for God and with people that is prepared to love literally without condition. Everyone, everywhere, all the time. At that moment, Jesus says, You've become a child of your Father in heaven. Because you see, God had another child, a son, who came to earth because we were far from perfect, because we were getting it all wrong in every possible way you could imagine, in all the ways that we've talked about and become aware of in this series, which has been a really hard series, by the way, to preach and to think about and meditate on and to hear, to just reflect on honestly who I am and the kind of person that I am towards the people around me. Jesus knows how not perfect we've been. And yet it says that he came and while we were still his enemies, He died for us. He, through the cross, reconciled us back to God so that we could experience the forgiveness of God and the fundamental transformation of character that sends us out into the world filled with the Spirit, motivated by a love for God and a love for people that spills out beyond our lives into the lives of everyone and everything around us. He came while we were his enemies and died for us so that everything could change. That's what it looks like to love. And Jesus sends you out to love like that in your world because Jesus came to love you like that in your life. 